This is Brain Matters, the podcast where we explore the brain with the scientists who study it. Here's today's host, Anthony Lacanina. Hey everyone, you're listening to Brain Matters. I'm Anthony Lacanina. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you're listening to the show, you're probably like me and think that brains are pretty cool. Have you ever wondered what exactly is that big, squishy organ that we love so much made up of? Well, brains are made up of two major cell types. The first are called neurons, and these have played the starring role in our understanding of how the brain works. And for a really good reason. Ever since it was discovered that electricity was a fundamental property of the nervous system, it is the neuron that communicates through electrical signals. Since then, it is well established that neurons are the main component of how information is processed in the brain. But, there is another major cell type in the brain. These cells are called glial cells, and for over a century, these cells were not thought to be very interesting. The prevailing idea was that glial cells provided structural support and nutrients for the neurons, but in a passive way, not contributing to the flow of information carried by the neurons. However, Research from the past decade has begun to implicate glial cells in increasingly important roles in the brain. For example, while glial cells do not relay electrical signals like neurons, they have been found to communicate with each other through a different language by changes in calcium levels inside the cell. Even more, glial cells play a critical role in regulating how neurons release neurotransmitter, which influences how one neuron can talk to another. So, should we be rethinking how important glial cells are? Our guest today is Dr. Dwight Burgles, a neuroscientist at Johns Hopkins University, who has been studying how glial cells and neurons interact to support normal brain function. His lab has contributed significantly to our understanding of how glial cells regulate communication between neurons, which has implications for a variety of disorders, such as epilepsy, stroke, and Lou Gehrig's disease. He has also been studying how glial cells play a big role in developing our sense of hearing, I started our interview by asking Dwight how he got interested in becoming a scientist. You, you went to Stanford, was that your uh, undergraduate or was that your graduate That was career? graduate. Yeah. Graduate career. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about that? What made you go into graduate sure. school and why you wanted to study it? Sure. So I think, I mean, it kind of starts when I was in high school and stuff. And I was, I was always interested in biology. I actually was interested in marine biology. Okay. I grew up in Iowa and the only animals <laughs> around were like pigs and stuff. But so maybe, there's not uh, farm biology. So, so maybe that was part of, you know, I was wistfully thinking about spending time on ocean going vessels and things, but I really, you know, I was fascinated by marine animals and, and Jacques Cousteau and these kinds of things. So I went to Boston University for undergraduate because they have a relationship with the Marine Biological Laboratory in Woods Hole. So this is a mecca for, as it turns out, neuroscientists, because some of the earliest studies in neuroscientists were studies that were done on model systems. For example, the squid has been used a lot in neuroscience because it has this very large nerve fiber and it's something that's very amenable to study. So people would flock to Woods Hole, all these scientists would come in the summer when the squid were there and they would, you know, use this giant axon for experiments. And so I just... You just bumped I, into I, enough of that. Yeah, so I kind of <laughs> ended up there and I was doing some cell biology as an undergraduate. I worked in a lab there for the summer and I was getting interested in things like, you know, how do very simple organisms exhibit complex behaviors? How do they do that? They don't have many nerve cells and things like that. And so my advisor at the time suggested that I sit in on one of these courses that they offer in the summer and courses like Rick Aldrich t taught in this course. And it so it turns out that these are some of the best courses in the world, for, for example, for neuroscience. And, you know, they're taught by experts in the field. And so I was just an undergraduate sitting in the back of the classroom and they were talking about things. I understood you know, a small fraction of what they were talking about, but I, I thought this was so fascinating and also came to the realization that, you know, there are very few marine biologists, but most of the people there were scientists of other types, cell biologists, developmental biologists, neuroscientists who were 
using marine organisms as model systems because they offered some experimental advantage. So once I had that kind of enlightenment, I, I thought, oh, you know, neuroscience really sounds fantastic. You know, it involves, you know, these electrical signals and chemical signals. And um, so I decided that this is what I wanted to do. And so then I, I decided to go to Stanford because it had one of the best programs, you know, in neuroscience and physiology. And, and who did um, you work for there? So I worked for a guy named Stephen Smith, who's a pioneer in in imaging. So he uh, he was one of the first people to start looking at uh, changes in intracellular calcium in neurons. So being able to resolve electrical signals, you know, involves using probes, you know, wires or glass probes, so you can pick up these little electrical events. Studying chemical signaling is much more difficult. So particularly things like ions are hard to detect. And so what Stephen and others had worked on was developing probes that would allow us to resolve these changes in ions inside cells. So he was really at the forefront of applying these new probes and studying how cells have changes in intracellular calcium. And, and calcium is a is really a central signaling molecule in cells, so it controls a whole bunch of biological processes within the cell. And so studying calcium transients really is central to understanding how cells are responding to different stimuli. So he was a pioneer in this, and he was at that time very interested in understanding what calcium was doing to glial cells. So this is where neuroscience really started to expand beyond just studying nerve cells. And, and this was partly brought about serendipitously, and that was as people developed these probes for calcium, they would put them into different cell types, and sometimes this was accidental. <laughs> uh, they would load these probes up, and they would label both the glial cells and the neurons, which are both there. And when they then started to look at changes in you know, uh, the activity of these probes, they found that these glial cells had really robust calcium transients that were happening okay so, so you're saying they load they were maybe hunting for you know they wanted to see these these the, you know something neurons. related to calcium related to neurons but then when they looked underneath it they suddenly saw the these glial cells just firing these right. really they waves spawn. they had waves of calcium oh, that wow. that passed through whole cell networks mm. so this was really i think a watershed moment that led to the realization that even though a lot of these glial cells are electrically silent so you know, you put electrodes down, the neurons have those beautiful electrical activity, action potentials and things. They're very exciting. Um, <laughs> no pun intended. But uh, <laughs> I like that. But the, glia, the glia are, you know, more or less electrically silent, but there's all this stuff that's happening underneath the surface. And with the development of these new probes, it became possible to study the signaling and see actually what they're listening to and the types of things that they're doing with uh, those signals. And, and uh, so I was really captivated by that. It was an exciting time, really new area. I don't know if I've just been you know, personally attracted to these things that are a little <laughs> bit contrarian and different. And, and it also seemed like an area that was so rich for discovery because, you know, we, we know a lot about ion channels. We know a lot about how action potentials are generated, how synapses work. And we know almost nothing about how this entire population of cells uh, work in the nervous system. So in the nervous system, actually, the majority of the cells are not even neurons. They're actually glial cells. <laughs> so it's kind of a scary thing. You know, if you were a liver biologist and someone said to you, you don't know what half of the cells are doing, <laughs> you know, how could you possibly understand how the liver works? What was the prevailing idea of what they were doing and what has kind of developed from that? Why did we not care about them? Like, what's the history of that? So the term glia, so that's what we call them, they're supporting cells, glial cells. The term glia comes from, I think it's the Latin word for glue or putty. And it would, they were just thought to be cells that were kind of in the spaces between the neurons. That is, the neurons were embedded in this stuff and they just kind of gave the nervous system structure and maybe provide some support to the neurons. But, you know, this is, they were sort of passive elements. That is, you know, the neurons could could suck off the nutrients that they needed, but that these cells didn't do much interesting. And I, you know, this this discovery of calcium signaling and active wave propagation, really, people started to open their eyes and say, well, maybe they there actually is a whole subnetwork of activity within the supporting cells, and maybe they're doing something more interesting. 
And, uh, and so those initial observations have led to the discovery that they express many of the same receptors for neurotransmitters that are on neurons and that they express voltage-gated ion channels just like neurons. So the distinction between these two different cell types is, has blurred quite a bit. And if you look at the structure of the nervous system, you find that these, these glial cells are intimately associated with the most interesting regions of nerve cells. So some of the cells wrap around synapses, some of them form contacts you know, with the axon, with the cell body, and so forth. So they're it's sort of a guilt by association. They're in interesting areas and they have interesting signaling. They're listening to the activity of neurons because they can sense the neurotransmitters that they're being released. And, and so, so a lot of the discovery phase has involved that kind of analysis now. So understanding <clears throat> which receptors they express and how they listen to activity. And now we're starting to enter a phase where we're beginning to push those cells and say like, well, what happens if you just raise calcium in the cells? What is the consequence of that? And we've discovered that, well, raising calcium in, in certain types of glial cells can actually cause blood vessels to constrict. So it can regionally control blood flow in the nervous system. Are they connect, they're associated with the blood vessels directly or they have some kind of, so what we yeah, have, what kind of, right. So it's, of course, like of many things, it's complicated, but there is a, yeah. there's one type of glial cell known as an astrocyte. It's named that because they have a star-shaped appearance. And those cells in particular send out processes that make contact with blood vessels. These are called end feed, and they kind of look like a sucker, kind of around the outside of the blood vessel. And if you raise calcium within the astrocyte, that will actually cause the blood vessel that that cell is in contact with to constrict. This is a this is a simplification of what happens, That's but <laughs> but but the the you know the the astrocytes can release things that will affect the smooth muscle cells to cause them to constrict or to dilate, and so this then provides you know if you back up you say well the the um, the astrocytes are sensitive to neurotransmitters those neurotransmitters will uh, raise calcium in the astrocyte and that. Elevation of calcium can then cause the astrocyte to release things which will cause blood vessels to constrict. So that's just one pathway. We know that astrocytes can also release other things that can affect the activity of surrounding neurons. They can release ions that will, say, depolarize neurons or affect their, their membrane properties. So they can actually participate in the signaling. That, right. Yeah. Just the same way that neurons do, but the rules for this interaction and the types of um, calcium signaling that is required to evoke different things in astrocytes is not it's not known at all. But it has been shown that under certain conditions that they can release neurotransmitters just like neurons. So you can imagine then that that they really could have a global effect on on the basal activity of, of neurons or the local effect on synapses. So it's all quite mysterious. I have to say that you know Big picture, we know some of the pieces, but we know none of the details. What are the rules for engagement? What are you know how how would a cell know the difference between this signal and that signal, and how would it cause different things to happen? So obviously, one an, an elevation of calcium, if it can do all these different things, it's not doing them all the time, right? It must be constricting blood vessels under certain conditions, and other conditions, it's releasing a neurotransmitter. Hopefully. We just don't know any. We just really don't know anything about that. And, and quite, you know, to be honest, there's a lot of, <clears throat> as many things in science, there's controversy. You know, where some people don't believe this, and this is so heretical. And this could possibly be the case. And so there are, there are lots of, um, you know, the meetings slightly are heated, <laughs> slightly heated discussions at at meetings. You know, <laughs> discussing these kinds of things. But I, I would say, you know. I don't, I don't, I think most people would agree that there's, there, certainly in terms of calcium signaling, there's no argument there. The questions are more about what those calcium transients do. And probably they do different things at different times. And a lot of the arguments and discussions are based on those kinds of experiments which are going on now. And, you know, the problem is that, you know, in order to study this, you need to manipulate calcium within astrocytes selectively. And so these are tricky. 
tricky experiments and you know they're open to interpretation this is how science is so as our as our ability to detect calcium in more physiological conditions and also our ability to manipulate the activities in very specific ways as those things evolve then we're in a better position to ask the you know the very focused questions about what these cells are doing and that's really i think that's what's so exciting i mean for my students you know they Oh, they're really, they're like, wow, you mean what I could do could end up in a textbook kind of thing? You know, I'm like, because I think there's a lot of, there really is a lot of room for discovery. Just like the real, Wild West in yes, the field right now? it is, it is. How yeah. long has, yeah, how long has, like, what years are we talking about where this suddenly kind of there was a sea change and people started paying attention? This would have been in the early 1990s, okay. yeah, when people started looking at the cells from a more active involvement perspective. And I would say that it kind of, you know, it has waxed and waned over time, but a lot of during that period, you know, people who were working on these cells, you know, were were trying to justify their own existence. You know, if I, no one wants to be studying glue, right? <laughs> so, well, yeah. so, you know, you give a talk and be like, look, I, these cells are more than just glue. And, uh, you know, so there were, there were for the underdogs. Yeah, here. there were many, you know, many talk, many meetings where, you know, there's on and on. Yeah. Okay. Well, we know that. I mean, they're there in the nervous system, right? They're incredibly abundant. They're quite diverse. There are multiple types of glial cells. So clearly they're doing something. Uh, I don't think you have to argue that they're important. It's just, it's what they do and how they do it. And so I think the field has progressed where we can put the full force of sort of genetic manipulations and advanced you know, recording methods and imaging methods, advanced microscopy to bear on this question. And that's why you're seeing a huge you know, increase in the numbers of papers and numbers of discoveries that are being made you know, about these cells, because there's a lot left to be discovered, really. Yeah. Could you talk about some of the discoveries you made in the lab, some of them that were surprising or and maybe a little bit about what systems, like what areas of the brain that you are looking for, that you're, yeah. like to answer these questions? I think, you know, many, you know, scientists use a, we often gravitate towards model systems, you know, so we might study a part of the brain that's just more amenable to study. And, and I think in a general sense, that's very valuable because likely the things that you find out there are going to be applicable to other areas of the brain. Um, when I was a postdoc, I was, you know, one of the things that I discovered when I was working with uh, Craig Jar was that there, there's actually a type of glial cell that receives direct input from neurons. So the, the general dogma is that you know, neurons and glia are quite separate, that neurons communicate with each other through synapses. They can be either electrical, but primarily chemical synapses. But that one-to-one -one communication between neurons is quite, you know, it's the sole provenance of neurons that they do this. And so what we discovered is actually that there's one type of glial cell <clears throat> in the brain that forms direct synapses with neurons. So this is sort of unheard of. No, of course that doesn't happen, you know, these kinds of things. But yes, if you record from these cells, you can see, you know, the electrical signals that are... Uh, that correspond to those synapses, these direct contacts, and it seems to, you know, be meaningful to the cell and that it can change intracellular calcium within those cells. And you find them, they are, they're formed early in development and they persist, you know, into adulthood. They even become more numerous as the animals get older and they're found in all brain regions. So if you record from these glial cells in you know, parts of the cortex or the hippocampus or even in white matter tracts where there were not thought to be any synapses, they form synapses with axons. So this is a very sort of fundamental property of these cells. And it's quite unusual because as I mentioned, glial cells are not thought to do this. And so there's been a lot of interest in trying to understand, you know, what is the role of this neuron glial signaling and how does it control the behavior of these cells? And these cells they have their own intrinsic, I think, interest in that these cells are progenitors for oligodendrocytes, which is a, another type of glial cell that forms myelin in the CNS. So this is the, you know, these fatty sheaths of membrane that wrap around nerve cell axons and allow signals to be carried very rapidly, 
you know, over long distances. So this, those sheaths around the axons are really important for that, and disruption of those sheaths is what causes the symptoms of multiple sclerosis. So the immune cells attack the oligodendrocytes, so they die. Well, these progenitor cells are really important for then generating new oligodendrocytes and new myelin. These are cells that are important for that purpose, and it's, it's also thought that those cells are probably cells that give rise to highly invasive brain tumors. So these cells persist throughout life, they can divide, they continue to divide throughout life, and they can migrate through brain tissue without any trouble. So those kind of characteristics are problematic in the sense that... <laughs> How do they get around? Of, they, they just have some kind of... or just sneaky and they... <laughs> they kind of... Um, they have they, interesting they, like processes. Yeah, they, yeah they have like little like growth cones, we call them. That's the tips of their processes, which they chew through the tissues. So they're really, you know, in the nervous system, there's, there's no space, right? Mm -hmm. So the membranes of cells or everything is just jam-packed together. And what little space there is between cells is filled up with something called matrix, like extracellular matrix. It's a lot of cross-linked proteins and stuff. And, you know, if you want to move around through that, you've got to kind of eat your way through it. Mm -hmm. And so they secrete proteases, things that chew up that that extracellular matrix and that allows them to move around and so that that's also why you know only some cells can do that so that combination unfortunately of ability to divide and ability to move through you know mature tissue is problematic if those cells become dysregulated and start to to divide uncontrollably and then you get tumors and those tumors also can move throughout the you know the tissue so this is um they're really interesting cells from that standpoint and i think one of the things that's been most fascinating to me is that the cells are found everywhere in the cns they actually form like a grid almost like a crystalline array in the nervous system like if, you, if you look same for yeah, these if guys, you stain yeah. for the cells and look at their distribution they're 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 forming they, they call it like tiling so that the cells are, you know, they form non-overlapping domains. Yeah, I was wondering what yeah. the signal is to then, you say that they can, they progenitor so they can divide yeah. and provide more of these oligodendrocytes. What, uh, do you know what kind of signaling allows them to start, like, dividing? Vision, division is, I mean, we do know some things that are, they're potent mitogens, which, you know, something that will promote their, their cell division. So these are growth factors, typically, and they will very potently induce them to divide. But what actually causes them to differentiate is, is really Im interesting and important to figure out. Uh, unfortunately, we don't know what that is, but you can imagine how that could be hugely beneficial if we could sort of force them to form new oligodendrocytes or form oligodendrocytes more rapidly in disease conditions or after injury to the CNS when you have demyelination. So what we know about multiple sclerosis is that in this disease, there's often, often a transition between uh, an episodic period where you have you know, immune-mediated attack, you kill the oligodendrocytes, and then they're regenerated and you get new myelin. And so people you know, have symptoms and they recover and get better. But then eventually, in many patients, it becomes a chronic progressive disease where you know, things just kind of go downhill and you don't get that recovery phase anymore. And it just gets worse and worse and worse, and you have you know the nerve cells start dying, and um, so the question is, what what is that transition? Why did the progenitor cells, which we know are there, why aren't they mobilized anymore? Why aren't they able to differentiate? So figuring out those key aspects of what induces that that tra transition, I think, is really really interesting and important. We haven't, you know, we just don't know at this point. Yeah. Do you think that their um, that their distribution and being tiled in a in a grid throughout the brain that does that do you think give you information about that they probably are really necessary in they you need a little pool of these oligodendrocytes throughout the brain yeah. for replenishing them? It's an interesting idea. I mean, we, I mean, we tend to think about oligodendrocytes as being very stable cells. So most most people appreciate that the nervous system has a very limited capacity for repair and regeneration. Like, you know, you're born with all the neurons you're ever going to have, you know, these kinds of statements. Um, this is largely true. I mean, there are some regions of the CNS where new neurons are formed, but in large part, if neurons die, you don't ever replace them. Mm -hmm. This is not true for oligodendrocytes. You have these progenitor cells. They can replace oligodendrocytes. So I think one, one, interesting theory is that maybe there's turnover 
of oligodendrocytes throughout life. And that's why you need these cells, because occasionally one of them kicks off, dies. And, you know, as I mentioned, having the axon myelinated is very important for rapid conduction. Turns out that these oligodendrocytes also provide metabolic support to the axon. So those two things, combination, you know, really important. You want to restore that as quickly as possible. Having the cells there might allow that. That's a hypothesis. We don't know that that's the case yet. Um, it's also possible that the cells do something quite different. And the evidence, I think, for that is pretty strong. And that is, you can find regions of the central nervous system where there's no myelin at all. There are no oligodendrocytes at all, and yet the cells are still there. So then it seems likely that, um, that they might have other functions. And, you know, you could speculate about anything. I mean, they have this interesting property where they communicate with neurons, and maybe they're kind of a modulatory cell. Maybe they control the local environment. Maybe they are important for recovery from small injuries, these kinds of things. And we have some evidence that they do that, that they can transform not just into oligodendrocytes, but also into um, almost like a scar forming cell in the nervous system, which is very important for limiting injury um, to surrounding cells after after focal damage and allowing recovery. And so it seems like they, they certainly probably have two functions, injury response, also generation of new oligodendrocytes, but then they might have five others, ten others. We just we just don't know at this point. Can you talk about the role of glial cells in auditory formation? Yeah. So this is the the broad perspective here is that it seems like sensory systems, when they're developing, they engage in signaling with the nervous system. So many of these are, you know, sensory systems, they're peripheral organs like our ears or our eyes, and they need to communicate effectively with the brain you know, to communicate these sensory stimuli. And what we've learned over the past, you know, few decades is that these developing sensory organs engage in this communication before they even respond to the external world. So it seems like having electrical signaling between these developing uh, sensory organs and the brain is important for, for sort of training the system so that it's prepared to respond to external stimuli when when they're able to do that. The model for understanding this is the visual system, and we know that even before eye opening and before light reaches the retina, that the retina generates its own electrical activity, and that's conveyed to the CNS, and that electrical activity is important for shaping connections and shaping the behavior of different neurons in the system. So again, so that it's ready to go when the eyes open and needs to see and interpret those signals correctly. and how this feeds back on glial cells is that what we've discovered is that in the developing cochlea, which is the auditory organ of, of mammals, that there's a group of glial cells in this developing structure that are training the hair cells. So the hair cells are the ones that transduce sound. They have these little cilia at the, at the surface, which are deflected when there are sound waves that enter the ear. And what we found is that even before the animals can hear that these glial cells are driving activity in the hair cells. So they're basically taking the place of sound during this period. And then everything works as it would normally. The hair cells signal to the neurons. The neurons then convey that electrical activity to the brain. And then that electrical activity passes through the different circuits in the auditory pathway. Is this quite different from the visual system where there's spontaneous activity? Is, this, is that not driven by similar events? I think that's probably semantic. I mean, so there's a completely different mechanism, and, and it seems like in different sensory systems there are different mechanisms that are used. So in the visual system, there's a group of amacrine cells. It's, it's a type of nerve cell, nerve-like cell, Almost um, like a glial cell. No. Kind of like glial cell because <laughs> it doesn't really fire action potentials. And, you know, it has some of the characteristics. It's kind of in between. But it does but, a like function. Yeah, it it's... seems to like do something similar. So it, it spontaneously releases a neurotransmitter, and that neurotransmitter then acts on the ganglion cells, which are the output cells of the retina. And so they're, they're driving activity during this period, even in the absence of light. And so in the develop, what we found in the developing cochlea is that this little this group of glial cells spontaneously releases ATP now, which is also a 
a neurotransmitter and it can act on these cells and surrounding cells. And by doing that, they then activate, you know, neighboring uh, hair cells, which then send their, you know, their activity to the neurons and the neurons then convey that activity uh, into the brain. During development, again, this happens during a period where the animals are not responsive to external sound, and yet you can see electrical activity that's happening. The big, the big difference between that activity, I mean, obviously one is intrinsically generated and the other is generated by an external input, in this case sound. The other is that the type, the pattern of activity is quite different. So during early development, the types of activity that the, the nerve cells exhibit is like bursts. You get you know, periods when they're very intensely active and then they're quiet for a while. And really, you know, they fire off a burst of action potentials. And those kinds of things are thought to be kind of plasticity-inducing signals that can draw, reliably drive like changes in gene expression and changes in the strength of connections between uh, nerve cells. So, so, so this, yes, this is something else that that we discovered kind of, you know, serendipitously. We weren't auditory physiologists, you know, yeah, hearing, just looking hearing, at a ear yeah, one day. And yeah, <laughs> mm -hmm. it kind of like like many things it happened just an ear just uh, fell on your desk. No. <laughs> a chance. <laughs> we didn't did, did, did we somebody mistake like... and we didn't know what we were recording from. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, it was a chance it was a chance meeting uh, between an auditory physiologist, Elizabeth Glowatsky and I, we were actually giving chalk talks to the incoming graduate students and she was describing this beautiful preparation that she had developed for recording from cells and I thought oh this might be a great place to look at the role of glial cells and then so we hatched a plan and just did some pilot experiments there and and you know this is where it it came from it emerged just from this this very serendipitous you know desire to as I was mentioning maybe identify another model system for looking at interactions between neurons and glia, you know, it's it's often some some um, some problems are are just hard to get a handle on. You know, are almost intractable unless you have a, a model system that offers you some greater access to the cells or a greater ability to manipulate the conditions. And that's why a lot of scientists had gravitated towards these model systems like the squid, which had this huge nerve cell that could be impaled with electrodes and manipulated and in the same way that's what that's what attracted me to the the cochlea because the physical relationship between the these glial cells and the hair cell and the the, the neurons that convey the information to the CNS was really quite self-contained and, and discrete there and it had a lot of advantages for manipulation so that was kind of the motivation for for kind of going after that. These glial cells, and they actually have electrical activity, which is very different than what you see. You, see, you said there's calcium signaling going yes. on in, the, in, the, in most areas of the brain, but here, these guys are actually producing right, electrical activity. Right, very was, large electrical signals. And that was, uh, that was surprising. And then you did, um, was that the first step? Was it seen, was you guys yeah. made this, you got this preparation right. and then mm -hmm. started, you know, got near one and then suddenly saw Right, this. so we wanted to study, you know, we were, at the time, the details are that we were interested in understanding how neurotransmitters were removed once they're released at synapses. So, you know, the nervous system works by chemical signaling, release neurotransmitters. Most of those neurotransmitters actively have to be actively removed from the extracellular environment. These are with pumps, right? That pumps, kind of like right, transport. like transporters that get mm -hmm. taken up. And, uh, and so I was interested in, this is an interesting synapse here in the auditory system because it releases a lot of glutamate. Um, and how do they cope with that? You know, how do they cope with releasing lots of glutamate? And so I thought it'd be a nice system to look at that. And so we wanted to record from the glial cells. So we recorded from the glial cells. And then, you know, what we found was that the glial cells had this very robust electrical activity. And it was something unexpected. If you record from these astrocytes, for example, in the, in the brain, you see almost no electrical activity at all. It was nothing like that. So it was definitely the contrast between those two cells. I thought, hmm, this must be something really important. If they're going to, they're putting all that energy in generating this electrical activity, it's for some purpose. And, uh, and so it was just a compelling scientific question. This is not, you know, I didn't have a linear trajectory to work on auditory physiology. I was just interested in understanding how neurons and glial cells interact with each other, and this seemed like 
a really clear case of potentially important interactions. And so I thought, well, if we could just understand what it is that generates these electrical responses in the glial cells, we might understand something about how this sensory organ develops and how, you know, the importance of these cells during development. And so that's what we started to do. And, you know, we're quite naive about, about this and, um, you know, thinking that, oh, we had grand visions about how this, you know, who knows, this could be very exciting. And maybe this is what's driving activity. But very early on in the project, when we were doing these experiments, it seemed like, oh, this didn't have anything to do with the activity in the hair cells or the neurons. And in fact, the glial cells were, were not only exhibiting this activity, but they were producing it. They were doing everything. They were like self-stimulation. Mm-hmm. And so this seemed like oh, some sort of epiphenomenon. You know, they were going off and doing their own signaling by themselves. Area. Yeah, and they're generating all this stuff, and it had nothing to do with what was going on in the neurons. But then, you know, through a couple of other discoveries, we found that that um, the glial cells not only had electrical activity, but they also underwent these shape changes. So they actually sh- shrunk when they had the activity, and the shrinking was very closely linked to the electrical activity. We'll have to put something up yeah, online because this is you guys have yeah, to see yeah. it. Because I mean, yeah, yeah, that was pretty wild. You yeah. just see these was. So you yeah. said people work. The people in your lab saw this yeah. and were like, "This is yeah. kind of bizarre." This is great. So as a student, Nick, <laughs> Nick Trich, and um, I, I remember, I remember basically falling off my chair when I saw it, yeah. and and it was one of those just incredible moments that you have as a scientist. It's hard to. I don't think any, you know, if you're not a scientist, it must be eureka moments, right? It really was a eureka moment. And we were, um, Nick was actually um, looking at the preparation. He was just taking a couple pictures. So he had taken a couple pictures of it. And and he said to me, he's like, I, there's something weird happening. He's like, this, this part of the preparation is dark. And then it wasn't dark later. And then so I said, well, that's because the bulb on the microscope is flickering. <laughs> and so I said, well, we can figure this out if we just do a time lapse. So, so instead of taking just a couple pictures, we took pictures every, you know, five seconds or something like that. And then we played it back as a movie. And the moment we played it back as a movie, you just saw these things happening. And that was the moment I, I just, I said, you know, Nick, you're going to be famous because that was, <laughs> because I immediately struck me that this was clear biology. And, and something quite significant. And not only was it just telling us, it told us something about this whole, you know, what these cells were doing, but it, it was a huge advance in that it allowed us to see where the activity was occurring. So we didn't have to put in a dye or an indicator for calcium or even put an electrode. All we did is have to look at the preparation. And just by looking at where these shape changes occurred, it told us where and when ATP was being released by the glial cells. You found that those are so, totally uh, correlated, right? So the yes, release of ATP made right. those make those little areas yes, contract. Exactly. You can block it if you block the ATP receptors. And if you apply ATP to the preparation, it induces very strong contraction. So mm-hmm. it seemed like really this was showing us, it was providing a physical manifestation of where ATP was being released in the preparation. So that was cool because then it basically gave us a map of where the activity was occurring and it showed us that activity was happening right near where the hair cells were located. And that's what led to the, although we were initially discouraged and thought this had nothing to do with, you know, kind of controlling activity of, of hair cells, when we saw that it was happening right next to the hair cells, then it all of a sudden it might be it, providing yeah. some. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and what it, kind of information? Yeah, did it? Do you think it's it's providing then? So, what it does? I mean, so the what we did take sort of a side a side trip here, and that we I mentioned that ATP is what controls activity in the sporting cells, and for you know many years we thought ATP was actually what was actually also activating the hair cells, but now we think that it's it's more indirect than that that actually the ATP primarily only acts on the supporting cells, and the supporting cells release potassium ions that then depolarize the hair cells. So, so really this is what happens. You get, you get these, little, these little periods of potassium release from the supporting cells, and that causes a depolarization of the membrane. So the hair cells become, their membrane potential becomes more positive. That, that's an excitation that excites those cells, and then they fire... Uh, calcium spikes, they generate these regenerative responses, and that then induces the release of neurotransmitter onto the, uh, onto the neurons that then convey that information 
to the CNS. So this, in this way, these supporting cells are sort of training the hair cells before. So they provide these little discrete bursts of activity. And because the activity in the supporting cells is spatially localized, it allows activity to be generated in hair cells that ultimately will be responding to similar frequencies of sound. So there's a, uh, um, a saying in neuroscience that you know cells that fire together tend to wire together. So activity patterns, you know, when cells show similar activity patterns, they tend to connect with each other in the nervous system. So this, this mechanism where you uh, can initiate activity in groups of hair cells that are close by one another then could be a substrate for allowing some of that wiring to occur downstream. So, so what you're saying is that, yeah, there's these like, spontaneous events that occur in the in those nearby glial cells. Yes. They, like, they, they physically contract, and then a couple of those hair cells, like say two hair cells right next to each other, both depolarize. They both fire now very you know close together. Exactly. And one that's like, say, really far away from that doesn't because it's not getting that little activity. That now provides, before the animal can even hear, it allows sort of the ability then to you know, tells the downstream targets, these ones are close together, these yes. ones are not. Right, so when things fire together, it tends to strengthen the synapses that are formed onto the target neurons. And also it, the ones that are not correlated are kind of punished or removed or weakened. And so that's the way that you, you know, strengthen connections between groups of cells that have similar patterns of activity. And then, and, and then, in adulthood, does that that allows for a nice fine-tuned ability to pick up on lots of different frequencies? Is right. That... Mm -hmm. So the uh, that's the thinking. I mean, there's there's this interesting phenomenon in the the auditory system. It's it's known as tonotopy, and that is that um, uh, sound information is carried in discrete circuits through the auditory system. So low frequency sound is transduced by um, you know, hair cells that are in one part of the cochlea and high frequency sound is transduced by cells in another region. And that spatial distribution that's found in the, this sensory organ is also maintained in circuits in the auditory pathway in the brain. So you find the same tonotopic organization of inputs, pathways, and things like that. Mm -hmm. So it's wow. been a really outstanding question. How is that tonotopy established early in development? Now we, for sure, we know that this is not the only mechanism that drives that kind of thing. Likely what we're seeing, this electrical activity, is for sort of very fine-scale refinement. And that's because we know <clears throat> that the basic wiring of the nervous system is something that is driven by genetics. It is more or less sort of independent of activity. Things will grow, find their connect targets based on you know, different molecules that are expressed along the pathway and when the cells are, are generated and so forth. And this, so this sort of, this is like genetically pre-programmed. This sort of happens by default. But then you layer upon that these kind of activity-dependent mechanisms which allow finer scale refinement of the connections. And those finer scale connections, you know, really are what are important for, you know, discriminating different frequencies of sound and things like that. This is what we think, anyway. Do you, do you think that if you were to um, study a gradient of, um, of mammals that have various, like, frequency ranges... Like say, I, like, I know that like there are certain yeah. birds that have, you know, that are like they use that as their primary. There's owls I know that have, you know, some very strong, you know, uh, discrimination of, of mm -hmm. hearing. But I, actually, yeah. I'm not positive of their frequency, but they definitely are. They use that a lot. I wonder if you would, do you think that you would predict finer refinement or spontaneous activity? It's, inter that? it's interesting that, uh, yeah, it's possible that, you know, maybe that you would see that, there were fewer hair cells that were activated under any one, you know, spontaneous event, something like that. I think that's that's really reaching even further than you know. I it, I think it's important yeah. to say that you know what we're talking about is is just hypothesis right now. We don't we don't know really yeah. what this activity is doing. I think in very sort of crude ways, for example, you can remove the cochlea, and what you find is that you'll see death of neurons. You'll see um, changes in the physiological properties of neurons in the brain that are in the auditory system. So this, the general, you know, the general scope of what we think is that this activity is important for promoting survival. Neurons need activity to survive for the most part. It's also important for stimulating their maturation. 
So neurons show very, you know, different types of firing behavior, if you will. The electrical activity that one neuron exhibits is different from another neuron, and these, this electrical activity is really central to what they do. They, they have to refine their properties, and it has to be appropriate for the system that they're in. So we think that that electrical activity also plays a role in this. And, and then it does this, what we think is this small-scale refinement to make sure that you know, the cells are talking to the right targets and that that information is carried properly through the system. But I would say that you know, this still needs to be proven mm -hmm. in the way by tracing it all the way back to the spontaneous activity and now using, say, genetics to take to an animal that, and, yeah, yeah. and say, like, look, if we block the spontaneous activity in, in these glial cells and prevent this training period, what happens? What's the consequence of this? And I think we're, we're getting quite close to that now. Oh, cool. But okay. in order to be able to do that, you have to understand the molecules that are participating in this. Yeah. Right? So you have to know, you know, you know what are the mechanisms that allow ATP to be released, to be sensed by the cells, for the cells to undergo this shape change, for the cells to release ions. You know, and, then, and then you say, well, what we can do is we can take out that particular protein just in the supporting cells. We don't affect the hair cells. We don't affect the, the, the neurons that convey information to the brain. Or could you even, so like, are, in the slice, yeah. just one half of it or something, you know? Well, I guess so, you would need it so to develop it all has to be in yeah. vivo. It has to be in the animal, yeah. right? So, <laughs> and not only that, you can't do a manipulation which just renders the animals deaf. Yeah. Because if it renders the animals deaf, then you can't study frequency discrimination. You can't study anything. So it has to be a manipulation that is subtle enough that really just transiently disrupts this training period, but then allows everything else to... Be normal and that just that you know from a scientific standpoint is is challenging you know and it's taken knowledge about the molecular mechanisms that allow this kind of activity to occur and so that's kind of what in the intervening period between discovering this activity and where we are now that's we've been trying to fill in those holes and try to understand you know how does this whole process work and identify the molecular components and I think we're we're close to that now so I think we're close to really starting to dissect out the various roles that this activity plays and you know I think that this is um, this is really given that different sensory systems seem to use this I think the things that we discover in this one system can be applied to understanding how it is that sensory systems develop as a whole and why they've evolved to use this process. That's awesome. Uh, what do you enjoy most about your day-to-day -day being a neuroscientist? Uh, I love the, the just the creative aspect of it. I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm an intensely curious person. I think <laughs> this is, you know, if you think about what qualities that you need to be a successful scientist, I think uh, you have to be stubborn. I've got that. Uh, you have to be intensely curious. I mean, to the extent that just getting the answer like gives you such tremendous joy, right? Because this is what you get day to day. You don't get a big paycheck. You don't, you know, you don't get all these other things that you would get if you were doing uh, something else in life. So it's it's that following your own curiosity and and enjoying the discovery. That is discovering things that no one else knew. You were the you were the first person to see that, to know that, to understand that, and um, you know. So I think that that, in terms of personal qualities, that's kind of kind of what I get out of it. Motivates you. Yeah, right? that's what motivates yeah. me. You have to be. <laughs> of course, so you rescale over the years, such that even the smallest little things that you find out <laughs> give you tremendous, tremendous enjoyment. But um, but. There is a social aspect of it, too. I mean, seeing, uh, you know, now that I, I run my own lab, you know, I'm, a, I'm an investigator and I have uh, postdoctoral fellows and graduate students in the lab. They're, they're the hands, right? They're the ones that are doing the experiments. I, I have to live vicariously. So I, I kind <laughs> of, you know, they'll come to me and show me, you know, this latest, greatest experiment. And, um, and so I've been able to recalibrate think that you have to be able to do that too because you know they are certainly more talented than I am at doing <laughs> these things now by a long shot and I'm always amazed at the kinds of things that they can they can pull off mm -hmm. and uh, it's it's super exciting and super gratifying to see 
someone else enjoy in that same sort of discovery. I mean, it's, um, yeah. Do you like being in that mentor kind of position? Yeah, yeah, I do. Mm -hmm. I mean, I miss, I actually miss being there doing experiments, but I also appreciate that, you know, just given the demands on time and family and everything, it's just, you just can't, particularly for the kind of science I do, which takes big blocks of time, uninterrupted, very difficult to do that, you know, Mm -hmm. nowadays. So I, I rely on them entirely but it is um it is really exciting to see them enjoy that same you know uh sense of novelty and discovery that comes with finding something else that finding something that no one else has seen before um so it kind of it it is kind of science selects i think for those people (laughs) that uh, are willing to uh, devote themselves that's the tree that's the one tree that we get so i you know (laughs) of course people you know people have asked me what you know how how do you get into science or whatever i just don't i think it's because i'm just super curious as a person you know and um intensely intensely driven to find the answer to the you know just almost like getting angry or pissed off at like you know just, i want to find this out and i will not stop until i find this out you know like it's just you know the sense of like frustration but not for it to be overwhelming to, to channel that into something that's really positive you know mm-hmm. to say we are not going to give up on this and if we don't understand this and this didn't turn out the way we think well then we'll just we'll, We'll back up and then we'll f- try something else. And, and you know, and, and it, we're limited in our creativity. And we, you know, we can lay grand, out grand models for how we think things should work. Unfortunately, evolution doesn't work that way. And things are often very strange, seemingly strange or complicated. And um, I just, I always tell my students, just, oh, don't be afraid of, you know, the data. That is, don't be afraid that your favorite hypothesis is, is not correct because the true biology will be infinitely more interesting. <laughs> yeah. So if we didn't figure it out this time, we'll figure it out, you know, through another set of experiments. And, um, you know, I think the danger is that you get with, you know, these pet hypotheses about how things work, but it's, it's, it's more exciting to just let it take you where it's going to take you. And, uh, yeah, there's incredible complexity and wonder in science so that, there's, there's never, um, I don't ever think that there's like a dearth of this kind of thing to discover. So we, you know, that's why, that's what's also great. So someone who's really curious, it's wonderful because there's just so many things to try to figure out and discover. Well, thank you so much for talking with us. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks for listening to this episode of Brain Matters. We'd like to thank today's guests for joining us and you for listening. For more information about the science you heard today, please visit us at brainpodcast.com. See you next time on Brain Matters.